within the, the very first few days of the detention of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, uh, Chinese officials were highlighting a link between the uh, detention uh, a week before of, uh, of Madame Meng uh, and uh, the arrest of the two Michaels. Uh, it has been obvious from the beginning that this was a political decision made uh, by the Chinese government, uh, and we deplore it and have from the very beginning. Uh, Welcome to Just Planet, the podcast about laws, life, and global crises. I'm your host, Sukanya Pele. Today, we're talking about the continued detention of two Canadians in China. Their names are Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Canada is holding in detention a woman named Meng Wanzhou, who the United States requested be extradited to face criminal charges relating to fraud in the United States. She was arrested in early December 2018, and within two weeks, two Canadian citizens were arrested on national security-related charges by the Chinese government. They have spent more than 650 days in prison. In the recording that you've just heard, a representative of the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs is stating that Canada's Minister of Justice has the legal right to release Madame Meng. And if Canada did this, it would allow for consideration of the release of the two Canadians. Canadian experts are currently divided. Some lawyers have argued that if Canada releases Madame Meng, it will send a message to countries around the world that Canada can be manipulated, that all a country needs to do is to kidnap a Canadian citizen and hold them ransom against a desired outcome by the Canadian government. On the other hand, there are distinguished lawyers, including former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour and former Minister of Justice Alan Rock, among others, who signed a letter addressed to the Prime Minister in June of this year, arguing that pursuant to the Extradition Act, the Minister of Justice has discretion, that rule of law is not at stake because the Extradition Act provides for the Minister of Justice to exercise, in this case, his discretion and release Madame Meng. Secondly, extradition itself occurs pursuant to a legal process, but is largely and has always been a political act, one that is based upon principles of comity and respect. It's a polarizing issue some say it's a legal issue, others say it's a political issue. At the bottom of this are the lives of two individuals who have spent more than 600 days in a foreign country in prison. To discuss this, I'm speaking today with Gar Pardee. He is a former Canadian diplomat, has been ambassador to several countries. He has worked relentlessly over decades to protect the rights of Canadians detained or held in foreign countries. He currently spearheaded a letter signed by a number of retired diplomats and officers of Foreign Affairs Canada. And that letter was just sent to Prime Minister Trudeau in September 2020. Please join me now to hear our conversation with Gar Party. I'm speaking this morning with Gar Party. He's a former diplomat who spent 42 years with the Canadian government 
and 36 of those years were spent as a diplomat. He's been an ambassador to Costa Rica, Panama, Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador. And during his tenures, he also had experience with hostage taking and freeing of Canadians held in detention. Gar, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Jakanya. Gar, you were one of the prominent Canadians who signed a letter to the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, in June of this summer. Am I correct about that? I'm doing another letter that involves as many people who have retired from the Foreign Service. But the other letter was a combination of people from the Foreign Service and other Canadians. Okay, so Gar, can you tell us in your own words briefly, what is the situation with Canada's current detention of Madame Meng Wanzhou? There is a legal process underway involving the request from the United States for her extradition there on a variety of uh, fraud charges. There has been a couple of court hearings on that request. At the moment, uh, there is a suspension until, I think, April of next year before the substance of the American request for extradition will be examined by a a court in British Columbia. Shortly after she was detained by Canada with respect to the extradition request from the United States, China arrested two Canadians. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Uh, Yes, uh, she was uh, detained in Vancouver on December 1st, 2018. And then 10 days later, two Canadians who were, one was resident in China, the other one was visiting China. They were detained by the Chinese authorities and they've been imprisoned ever since. For the early, for over a year and a half, I think uh, there was some ambiguity about what the charges might be. But a few weeks ago, the Chinese did institute charges relating to violation of their national security laws for both of these individuals. Do you think there's any truth to the uh, charges regarding the national security laws? National security laws are the mushrooms of any legal system, and you can make you can make almost any uh, charge. And in China, they are more ambiguous and open-ended than they are in most countries. But in, I don't think anyone who knows things as far as Chinese judicial system and national security systems operate that this is anything but retaliation for the detention of Madame Meng in Canada. So it's a retaliatory action and not really a sustainable legal effort by the Chinese because of the activities of the two individuals. One of the individuals, uh, Mr. Korvig, of course, is an expert on China. He spent most of his professional life dealing with China, and he's now part of the Canadian Foreign Service, but on leave and working with the international crises group and uh, part of his mandate with the International Crises Group is to report on developments in China. Uh, The other individual, Mr. Spavor, uh, basically is a businessman who works on arranging uh, trips to North Korea, largely for Canadians and uh, other people. And really their activities, uh, you mean to suggest that they are acting in some ulterior motive with respect to uh, the national security of China is absolutely far-fetched. Thanks, Gar. And I agree with you. As you know, I've also done um, work on this. And I know that in any country, once you say national security law, that can be defined to include anything if that's intended. So what has been um, the position of yourself 
and other prominent Canadians with respect to what Canada should do to affect the release of Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spavor, referred to as the two Michaels. I think the conclusion that most of us have reached, and there's a large group of us, I think, uh, uh, who feel this way, is that the Chinese and people with experience in dealing uh, with the Chinese government, the Chinese government is not going to change its mind tomorrow and say about the two Canadians, go home, things are all over here. The key element for them, of course, is Madame uh, Ming and the request for extradition. As far as they were concerned, that has to be done away with. And it's in those circumstances that the possibility that the the two Canadians then would be released by China and allowed to return to Canada. What we are arguing or discussing or presenting to the prime minister in all of this is that there is any, what should be done here is an exchange. Madam Meng would be released from the extradition proceedings. They would be uh, terminated by the minister of justice and allowed to leave Canada and the two Canadians then be allowed to return to Canada. But this needs to be negotiated in advance to make sure that there are no hiccups along the way. But essentially, it is an exchange. It essentially is the kind of situation that you get in when people are kidnapped anywhere in the world. Essentially, if you want to protect the lives of the two individuals, then you've got to do something as far as the other side is concerned, whether it's the payment of money, the release of prisoners. There's any number of situations where governments have engaged in this sort of situation. There's nothing unique in such situations. Uh, uh, the, the Chinese government has done it, the American government has done it, the British government has done it, the French government has done it, and the Canadian government has done it. So it's nothing new here. It is just a question here of the government just deciding that, in effect, they will follow the elements in the Extradition Act that allows the Minister of Justice to terminate an extradition proceeding in Canada and to release the individual involved. Thank you, Gar. So you've said several things that I have several specific questions about. Sure. First thing, thank you. So first thing is that the same week in June that a letter was signed by a number of prominent Canadians telling Justin Trudeau that the Minister of Justice under the Extradition Act has the discretion to release Madam A Chinese spokesperson for their Ministry of Foreign Affairs made a statement where he effectively indicated that the situation would be resolved if Madame Meng was released, effectively indicating that the two Michaels, their detention would be resolved. This suggests that they are open to an exchange of detainees, meaning Madame Meng for the two Michaels. Now, critics of this are suggesting that if Canada capitulated and released Madame Meng, it would endanger Canadians in other situations because any country in a dispute with Canada would seek to resolve it by getting their hands on whatever Canadian they could, putting them into detention, and then effectively holding up the detainees to pressure Canada to meet their demands. What do you say to such criticism? That argument, uh, I think, is nothing more than just blowing smoke. Canadians travel the world as much as any uh, any people. And I mean, there's always some Canadian in trouble somewhere around the world. I don't think there's a bit of land anywhere in the world that you can't find a Canadian there. And they're always out there. They run into trouble. They have difficulty. And you deal with the cases as they arrive. 
and help them in every possible way. Uh, the the idea that suddenly that you do take action to save two Canadians who are in serious difficulty in China by this mechanism does not add to the level of dangers that Canadians generally face and all travelers face, by the way. There's nothing unique in the fact that, Canadian, that Canadians are identified and uh, an action taken against them by nefarious regimes. There is almost, there's hardly a day that goes by that there is not a story uh, in the papers where Canadian is in difficulty. The trouble, the difficulty is, is in effect, is negotiating their uh, getting them out of that difficulty. And in this case, as far as China is concerned, I don't see any possibility China will use, possibly use this technique. Australia is having some trouble with them right now, but in that case, the two journalists concerned were allowed to leave China. So I don't think there's anything absolute about the Chinese are going to use this if we were to negotiate the release of the two Canadians in exchange for the release of Madame Meng. I do not see that this increases the danger one iota for Canadians when they're traveling abroad. It's a it's an argument that people throw up when they have no other argument to make. There's no substance to it. But just to play the devil's advocate, it's one thing to say that there's Canadians all over the world, that's a fact, and that any time a Canadian travels to any foreign country, there's always that risk that they may fall into trouble with the authorities and find themselves in prison. And of course, you and I both know there's so many cases of that. But is it not a different situation when Canadians are picked up in a high-profile case and detained. If Canada was to capitulate, wouldn't Canada be opening the door for kidnapping to always be a negotiation technique? Not a good one, not a fair one, not even a moral one. But would Canada be opening up that door? Well, you mean, if you were to accept that as an argument, basically, uh, uh, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. I mean, the dangers that are out there, uh, we have over 50 years uh, I guess it is now, 1970, when we uh, reestablished uh, diplomatic relations with China. And more recently, after the death of Mao and the uh, changes in the Chinese economy, I mean, the degree of involvement that is there and the interests of both countries to see this go on. I don't see a danger in that happening. It's, uh, it's one of those what-if situations when you argue late at night in a dark bar, uh, if if you accept that as a danger, my goodness, we would have nothing to do with Iran whatsoever, or even maybe Saudi Arabia, or you could go back to the time when kidnapping was uh, was a daily uh, feature in Colombia. It 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 is there as a reality of traveling to other countries for everyone, not only Canadians. And the fact that you're trying to help two Canadians who are in serious difficulty that is the priority. You don't stop trying to help those two Canadians just by arguing that by helping them, we're going to create dangers uh, for others further down the road. It is a false argument. It has no validity, I think, in reality. Well, thanks, Gar. And that's where your 36 years of diplomatic experience comes in handy, because for people who haven't had 
any kind of direct experience, which is the majority of us who don't know what actually happens behind the scenes and in the diplomatic channels. Many of us don't know what happens behind closed doors, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You talked about myths. So there's many myths out there about how things work. One of those myths is that if you uh, agree to exchange, if you agree to demands for a, a hostage exchange, that you're suddenly making yourself as a country appear weak in the international community, as a country that can be pushed around, and as a country that can have its citizens endangered. I'd mentioned that you had in your previous statement that a number of questions arise, and one that arises that I think would interest our listeners very much, and certainly interests me, is that you said there have been many examples of Canada participating in an exchange before. Is that something that you can talk about? Yeah, exchanges. It's not so much exchanges. It is basically in ransom situations. What do you? What are you prepared to do to obtain the release of your uh, your citizens? It is not, exchanges is a uh, is is fairly rare. Uh, I can use that term, but it's not uncommon at all. Uh, you mean the Americans, of course, have exchanged just recently. There was somebody in an Iranian jail, and the Americans had somebody in their jail, and those people were exchanged. The Israelis do it all the time in terms of if one of their soldiers is captured in the Middle East. I want you to continue that important point, but when when uh, the U.S. or Israel participates in this, are they participating when the other country has taken their citizens into detention in retaliation for a detainee that they are holding? Not necessarily in direct relationship, but in effect, the underlying, the underlying principles that involve the countries are arguing that the reason for the detention is illegal, whether it's in Iran or in the United States. And in effect, that's what the argument fundamentally is between Canada and China right now. We are arguing that the detention of the two Canadians is illegal. The Chinese are arguing the detention of Madame Meng in Vancouver is illegal. So, I mean, the principles that's under discussion here is is exactly that. As not change, uh, you mean, in that sense from what we have seen in other countries. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more that the safety and the release of Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spavor is paramount. I think that critics are concerned that there is, that one can distinguish between a situation where, you know, country A has detainees, country B has detainees, and then they enter into some sort of negotiation to release them, to swap them, as it were. The distinguishing feature here, and I'm hoping that you can uh, address this satisfactorily for anybody who may have this doubt, including myself, is the difference here might be that the detention of the two Michaels is seen as a direct retaliation for the detention of Madame Meng. And if Canada says, okay, we're going to release Madame Meng in order to get the two Michaels back, does that not put Canada into a situation when whenever they have a dispute with China or some other regime that uh, wouldn't hesitate to take to kidnap Canadians or to hold Canadians hostage, wouldn't Canada be opening up the door to do that? No, I don't accept that kind of argument when you've got the lives of two of your citizens you mean, in difficulty. I think that is the issue, as you have just mentioned earlier, that is the prime objective here. And to ignore the rescue 
of those two individuals based on or to or not to try and rescue those two individuals based on the idea that sometime down the road maybe this might happen again that is that is so tenuous that i think it's not worthy of considera- consideration you know i mean there's a case not quite the same as this but it was a hostage situation in the southern philippines a few years ago Five years ago, there were four foreigners that were uh, arrested by or or captured or kidnapped by a separatist group in the southern Philippines and were held and they were demanding ransoms. The prime minister decided that we would not pay a ransom. The two Canadians were killed. The two other people that were kidnapped at the same time, arrangements were made for the payment of a ransom, and they were released alive. That is the dilemma that you've got here. By not doing something, is it it's based on some vague principles that were involved here, that uh, this no ransom thing, which has been demonstrated to be thoroughly wrong by any number of experts around the world, that there is no connection between the payment of ransom and your and uh, and uh, your letting yourself up for more kidnappings to take place. That is that is not borne out by reality. And in the China case, I think the principle that you have to look at here is the underlying principle that what what each government is arguing. The Chinese government is arguing that Madame Meng should not have been detained by the Canadian authorities. We are arguing that the two Canadians should not have been detained by the Chinese authorities. You mean, that is what you have to reduce the issue down. Then you say, what are the next steps then to resolve this? Well, dealing with the Chinese government, let me tell you, they are not going to change their mind tomorrow in terms of what they have done. So, in effect, they're not going to say, go home to the two Michaels. They're, they want Madame Meng going home to China. And so if that's the only way that this is going to be resolved, if this is the only way that you can provide absolute protection for the two Canadians, then it's well worth the price to do so. Thank you so much, Gar. That's very clear. So again, let me play devil's advocate. I I hate that expression, but let me ask you another question here. Um, What about critics who would say that's all well and good between China and Canada, but what about the relationship between Canada and the United States and the extradition treaty between Canada and the United States. If Canada says to the U.S., uh, sorry, but we're going to exchange Madame Meng to get our two Canadian citizens home, Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spavor, is that going to put more pressure on the relationship between Canada and the United States that's already uh, fraught with tension? Two answers here. Right now, given this time frame that is available right now, there's no cost involved in Canada doing this. I mean, the Americans are so preoccupied with their own affairs that something like this is not going to be of any great uh, importance to them. Longer term, even there, uh, the extradition treaty, I mean, we extradite more people to the United States and the Americans extradite back to us. It's a regular process. And both sides turned down requests here for a variety of reasons. The last substantive one, as far as Canada was concerned, was one that had to do with uh, President Obama, was in effect, they had asked for the request of the brother of uh, Omar Qatar. Uh, They wanted him extradited back to the States. And the courts looked at all of this and said that this was not a legal matter that the Americans were pressing here. It was a political matter. And this aspect of the Canadian Extradition Act provides 
for us saying no in these circumstances. The Americans have signed on to similar provisions within their extradition arrangements. And I I would guess that just about every country in the world retains the right to say no on extradition matters. And it's not a, a final decision by the courts whatsoever. That is the nature of extradition. It is a political act, not a legal act. So I don't anticipate any great difficulty from the Americans on something like this. It is nothing very novel in all of this. Okay, so I, I want to come back to the Abdul Qadir case uh, because I have a few things to say about that. But the first thing I wanted to ask you is that, is there a difference given that the Meng case is highly public? Well, you mean the Qadir case was not exactly a silent affair. I mean, these things all have their own... Uh, publicity attached to them. And one of the reasons, I think, why the courts were uh, second-guessing this one were the variety of statements that have been made by American officials, even surrounding Madame Meng. Some of the statements even made by President uh, Trump himself suggest that this is a political action, not a legal action by the American authorities. But yeah. the thing about the uh, Abdullah Qadir situation, though, is that there had been allegations of human rights violations that had occurred and torture that Canada relied upon in deciding not to extradite Abdullah Qadir. So it's slightly different, but it's I, I take your point. You're saying that there is precedent, even in high-profile cases, for the Canadian government to say we're not going to extradite to the U.S. Very much so. And I, I would take issue with the idea that uh, that that was the overriding concern in uh, Mr. Qatar's uh, that request for extradition. Uh, you mean, as you know, American, uh, what's the word, uh, I guess, uh, American policy as far as terrorism is concerned, their war on terrorism, the whole bunch of policies that was associated with this. But I think fundamentally, what happened in the Qatar case, it wasn't these other issues that the uh, judges were concerned with. I think with the overall use of the extradition process in Canada to get their hands on somebody that they thought should be in an American jail. There was no, I, I mean, one could argue that uh, the conditions that he might face if he went, if he was extradited to the state, it would be harsh imprisonment. But I think you would be pretty sure that there was no torture involved. Some of the elements in terms of the activities that Mr. Qatar was involved in uh, is what caused the concern here. But when the judges looked at it, they, they essentially they argued the, ju- the judgment that was rendered, which said that basically this was a tainted request from the United States. Yeah, it was the Ontario Court of Appeal. My recollection was that because Abdullah Qadir had been held in Pakistan for 14 oh, months, treated very badly, all done at the request, allegedly, of the United States. And then Abdullah Qadir was repatriated to Canada, and then the extradition request came from the United States. At that point, the Ontario Court of Appeal decided that um, the human rights violations were had, that he had already suffered were so shocking and justifiable that they wouldn't go ahead with that extradition. We can talk about the differences, uh, but what you're saying is that, yeah, we have laws, we have cases. Um, you and I are both aware of many examples when Canada has extradited people 
And those of us who are concerned with the potential for torture or the request for extradition based on very unsound underlying um, so-called evidence, uh, even when that evidence is procured by torture, we've been very concerned about that in the past. There's also examples of when Canada refuses to extradite, such as in the case of Abdullah Khadr or the famous cases of uh, Burns and Rafi, where Canada refused to extradite, where there was a danger of the two individuals in question being subjected to the death penalty. So Canada wouldn't extradite exactly, yeah. unless there was some assurance that that wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, what if I understand you correctly, Gar, what you're saying is that all of that is out there. We can both find many arguments of examples where Canada has refused to extradite, examples where Canada has to extradite. And I think what you're saying is that the overall consideration here is that we have two innocent men whose lives are in danger, who've already suffered uh, hundreds of days of detention, and now we've reached a point where we must get them home. Am I correct to read you that way? That's exactly what I'm all we're saying is that, and, it's, and people argue that it's not within the law, it is within the law for this to happen. In, and the only way the law applies here in, the, in a narrow sense is concerning the extradition request from the United States for Madame Ming. And the law provides quite clearly, it's one of the most clearest cut pieces of law, I think, in Canada, which says, gives authority to the Minister of Justice acting as a politician, you mean, to make the final decision. In this case, the Minister of Justice could have intervened after the courts had ruled and allowed for the extradition to take place. He didn't. And I think the wisdom of the courts, I think in this case, and the details that the court provided, I think gave the Minister of Justice any uh, pause on any suggestion that he might overrule what the court says. The case is there, I think, in, and, and I think there is an element in the decision of the Ontario courts with regards to uh, Mr. Kadar that in effect deals with the issue of any, whether or not the Americans, in the, in the, in the words of Mr. Kadar's lawyer, uh, Dennis Edney, who summed it all up, Dennis said that uh, the Americans had dirty hands in making this request, and that's a term that is uh, that other people are now using sometimes when dealing with these cases. One can get very focused on principles that we read about in the media, sort of the the urban myths that are actually mm -hmm. international myths that actually don't necessarily translate into the realities of day-to-day um, -day issues. And if we were to look at the reverse side of the coin, um, certainly you and myself and other uh, human rights advocates have often appealed, uh, I don't mean legally, but by we've, we've written to or advocated for the Minister of Justice to exercise discretion in not extraditing somebody because of unsound underlying evidence or about an alleged crime. And the Minister of Justice has refused to done, do so, and the individual committed to extradition has indeed been um, extradited. Uh, such as the case of Hassan Diab. And some people have said, well, Canada can't not extradite in such situations when it's an ally requesting the extradition because it will strain diplomatic relations. And the next time 
Canada seeks extradition from those countries, it will be denied. What's your response to that? Extradition, like with a lot of law enforcement treaties that are out there, mutual legal assistance, uh, even return of prisoners, those kind of things, countries enter into those agreements, and extradition is a classic case here, because it's in their interest to do so. And in effect, uh, then given the complexities that are always involved in these cases, uh, one case does not destroy the value of those instruments of uh, multilateral, if you like, law enforcement, uh, to use that term. And that's how it works. I I don't see a great danger here that suddenly we used to have a system. uh, Maybe you're not old enough to remember this. It was called the rendition system where, in effect, uh, Commonwealth countries would uh, rendite uh, prisoners between each other, essentially, without uh, a judicial involvement whatsoever. And that got changed, of course, because, in effect, one could not be sure whether it was the United Kingdom or whether it was Australia or or a country in Africa that might be abusing the system. So that's why there's a common denominator now in terms of the Canadian Extradition Act, which is there for everybody to see and for everybody to understand. And when we sign bilateral extradition treaties uh, under the ambit of the Canadian law, other countries understand exactly where we stand. And this ability of the Minister of Justice to exercise a political decision on extradition is well understood, and other countries do the same thing. So I don't think there's anything unique about the Canadian system. Gar, I can't thank you enough. Uh, You've been an excellent guest, and you've shed light on this very important case that is not only a political case, but I would suggest a moral case, because we have two of our fellow citizens being held overseas, and we have to consider what we can do Uh, practically to get them home. And you've made clear that, yes, we might be dealing with this within a legal context, but it's actually a political exercise. Absolutely. And, And I think that is the bottom line here, is those two Canadians who have now been sitting in uh, Chinese jails for well over 600 days. I think everybody knows what's needed here to get their release, and there's a question here of the Canadian government accepting that and acting accordingly. Gar, thank you very much for your time this morning, and I would really like to have you on as a guest again. If you have the time, listeners have probably heard my son singing in the background today. And uh, this is such an important issue that I think we could have a part two. I hope that you'll uh, join us again for another session in the near future. Thank you so much. And one last question, Gar. If uh, people want to find out more about this issue, is there a website they could go to, somewhere that listeners can go to find out more information about the two Michaels and particularly about your position on what needs to happen? Uh, No, I don't, uh, not as such. Uh, But if you want to use my email address for anybody who wants to, uh, you mean write in, I'm more than willing. I get lots of mail on this. So uh, another few letters won't won't be a problem. So if you want to use my email address, please do so. Well, I I just want to say here on the record that for the past 12 years, whenever I have been in uh, my working life, when I've been in positions where we had to 
advocate for the release of somebody. Um, you, Gar, have always been extremely generous with your advice, which is born of experience in very difficult situations. So I want to thank you for that. And can you tell us uh, which email address to use? And I will also make it available on the website for the show, in the show notes. G-A-R-P, garp at rogers.com. Thank you, Gar. G-A-R-P at rogers.com. We'll make that available on the show notes. Gar, thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye now. Thank you so much for listening today. If you would like to find out more about these issues, please feel free to write to us at justplanetpodcast at gmail.com or to write to garparty at garp at rogers.com. We look forward to bringing you another episode. Until the next time we meet, stay well.